views and opinions expressed by callers, guests, and hosts do not necessarily reflect those of the Black Talk Radio Network and Black Talk Media Project. Black Talk Radio is new black media for the new millennium. Let your wise rise up, see the signs of the times, if it's time, rise up, rise up. When death and hell dwell among all God's people, when those we chose and trusted have become completely corrupted and inherently evil, when the feast that feeds you starves our father's children, when snuff porn and pedo forms begin to get top billing, rise up. When famine claims millions, when justice gives blind eyes to billions, when the Lord's anger is no longer feared, if his protection is gone and your enemies are near, if you've seen the seas spill over and the mountains shake, break, and fall, if the moon ever turns blood red and you can't see the sun at all, rise up, no matter if the prize is... Welcome to New Abolitionist Radio on the Black Talk Radio Network, a program that seeks to educate, inform, and agitate an issue of 21st century legalized slavery Host, currently hosted by social activist and spoken word poet Max Parthas with Black Talk Media Project founder Scotty Reed and commentary by guests and callers on this weekly broadcast we discuss recent news on legalized 21st century slavery and human trafficking as it is allowed through the 13th amendment of the US Constitution along with projects and people who help combat it we are the official educational and introductory program representing the Millions for Prisoners Human Rights Coalition. If you want to know about the new abolitionist movement, what it is, and what it's about, this is officially the place to start. Today is the November 8th, 2017 broadcast of New Abolitionist Radio, and despite white supremacist propaganda, we are neither in the midst of a civil war nor an EMP blackout. On this day, in 1864, Northern voters overwhelmingly endorsed the leadership and policies of President Abraham Lincoln when they elected him to a second term. Lincoln was a political and moral chameleon, using or saying whatever needed to be said or used in order to achieve his goals, goals that were not fundamentally aligned with the abolition of slavery. Like Frederick Douglass's denouncement of the emancipation as a fraud in 1888, Lincoln's statements on race purity, white supremacy, and in support of the legal continuation of slavery can be found listed under things you'll never see in a history textbook. Tribal and I are now in Newcomer's Town, Ohio, trying to help establish something great. We need your help. We'll explain tonight. As always, we have more articles and stories pertaining to modern-day slavery than we can possibly cover in the time allowed. Be sure to follow us on New Abolitionist Radio on Facebook to see the full list. And don't walk away today without getting a yearly membership subscription to community.blacktalkradionetwork.com. We're building institutions together, and this is one of them. Our abolitionist in profile tonight is Sojourner Truth, a.k.a. Isabella Bumphrey, 1791-1126-1883. In this segment, For Freedom's Sake, A History of Rebellion, 
we will remember the Carroll County, Mississippi courthouse massacre that occurred March 17, 1886, where blacks attempted to use the courts against white oppressors. A rider of the 21st Century Underground Railroad is Dwayne Thorpe, 34, Philadelphia, unjustly incarcerated since 2008. This past Friday, a judge ruled that the homicide detective who arrested him fabricated evidence and provided trial testimony that was so prejudicial it should have been resulted in a mistrial. Got a question or a comment? You can call in toll-free USA at 1-866-510-9025. You can chat with us and others by logging in at uberconference.com slash blacktalkradionetwork. Once again, I'm Max Parthas. What's happening, Brother Scotty? How you doing, man? Hey, I'm doing the best I can under these conditions, Brother Max. And um, good to see some of the pictures I've been seeing come from you in Tribal Rain at the uh, location there in Ohio. So I'm glad y'all made it up there safely. And I'm just hoping that this project will reach its completion. Yes, sir. This is our, actually our first broadcast from Newcomers Town, Ohio, here at the James Clow and Sons plant, uh, where we are converting it to uh, abolitionist Grand Central Station, basically. We've got a lot of ideas and a lot of land to work with, and uh, we're in the midst of developing that land. Uh, we have some really good ideas, uh, like schools, not just here uh, for students to come and, and learn about the abolitionist movement, but also we're creating international connections with Ghana and they're working with us in Ghana to be able to start sending students from that country to America and vice versa. We also have uh, been setting up repatriation for Ghana where there's land being given out in Ghana for people that want to get it. I know you read about that uh, a few years ago. Well, we're taking advantage of that right now. And uh, we're also putting in, of course, as a poet and an artist, you know, we're uh, establishing locations for artists to come and be able to express themselves and learn and share and maybe put on some hella, hella <laughs> festivals uh, here in Ohio. Um, I'm really looking forward to the future. It seems bright. Yeah. I, so I'm just hoping that the community up there will come to um, understand, and I know the abolitionists up there understand your value and what have you, but I'm just hoping the wider community will support the abolitionist efforts there. I think the time is right now, Scotty, after the things that we have been involved with over the years. You know, uh, this is a whole different age now, so to speak, a different perspective. Uh, things are much clearer to much many more people than they were five or six years ago. And, you know, we've been involved in the largest uh, prison slave labor work strike in the history of this country. We've been involved in the largest gathering of slavery abolitionists uh, that has ever been seen before in this country uh, on August 19th. And uh, we've also been involved in billions of dollars of divestment programs where, uh, you know, prisons have lost billions, like, uh, you know, and divestments from Columbia University, from University of California, uh, and uh, I believe it was the whole city of Seattle uh, got rid of a $3 billion um, thing they had going with the, was it, no, it wasn't Bank of America, it was uh, Wells Fargo, where Wells Fargo took their money out of there, too. So we, we've been involved in a lot of things over the years that have made some serious changes, and I think people are appreciating it. Appreciating it. 
So the next logical step for us now is to build international coalitions to establish a base with land and uh, you know tools and resources to work with. And that's our goal now, in addition, of course, to amending the state constitutions. So for the next year or two, I'm going to be really busy. You know, um, there's something I want to address right quick, Max. I was asked to address this on the next program. And while, yes, in the five years that I've been involved in the abolitionist movement, um, we have seen all the gains that you just mentioned. The number one thing I would say is most important is that more and more people are waking up to the fact that the 13th Amendment did not actually abolish slavery, but it was a compromise bill uh, which brought the South back into the Union and allowed them to practice slavery through courts and prisons became the plantations. But of course, convict leasing, they leased those those people out. We still have convict leasing um, going on today. So some people talk like, you know, that program has ended. Well, just because they in one specific program doesn't mean they don't resurrect it under another name. So just the fact that, that people are waking up um, globally, not just here in the United States, but globally waking up to the fact that the greatest lie ever told was that the United States abolished slavery. Now, with all 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 of the gains that we have seen in the last five years, um, we've also seen you know some stuff that is not good. And we played the clip of the conference where you had a couple of uh, law professors from HBCUs, uh, some other. Uh, non-black people I'm not sure who they were um, but at this conference sponsored by the American Bar Association which is the association made up of lawyers and judges and they pay dues and they sponsor that and so I was thinking about that again and I said you know what that whole event was about it was about gaslighting the new abolitionist movement So let me read the definition of gaslighting. Gaslighting is a form of manipulation that seeks to sow seeds of doubt in a targeted individual or in members of a targeted group, hoping to make them question their own memory, perception, and sanity. Well, I would also add to that, that's to get other people to look at the targeted individuals or groups as being insane and not knowing what they're talking about or being crazy and, and all of that. I, I'm still, I'm, I mean, when that judge, that that white lady who was a judge who wasn't on the panel, she was in the audience and she asked the question and she said, so when I send people out there to uh, do community service, to do work in the community and we're not paying them. So you mean to tell me that's not slavery? That's not a form of slavery. And they were like, no, it's not. And she was like, oh, oh, I'm, I'm so glad because I wouldn't want to send people in. I'm paraphrasing what she said. But when she came to that conference, it was apparent that she was questioning in her own mind whether or not it was slavery. But because of the gaslighting that took place at that convention, she walked away now convinced 
that what she is a part of isn't slavery. So I was asked to address, you know, gas. What did I mean by that conference was a, a major effort to gaslight us. And I suspect that we'll see many more such efforts to gaslight us. But we just, got, hey, when the truth is on your side, that's all you need. All we got to do is tell people to read. Okay, if you can comprehend English, you can comprehend the exception clause of the 13th Amendment that made slavery legal. So I, I just want to address that for that listener. Well, that's very insightful, Scotty. And I hadn't looked at it like that. And I, I would suspect that you are very likely right. And uh, what Scotty Reed is referring to is slavery versus liberty, the history and relevance of the 13th Amendment at 150. And it was Judge Barbara Carhow who asked if convict labor violates the 13th Amendment. And that clip is available right now on New Abolitionist Radio if you want to see it yourself. As he said, this was presented by the American Bar Public Education Division. So this is what they want people to understand and learn. This is what they're teaching here. So uh, that we broke down that whole thing about 15 to 20 minutes worth of clips and it was fascinating to see and why would I think it's also important Max so I think it's also important that I state well why would they gaslight y'all why why would they try to deny that aren't they lawyers didn't they study the law that shouldn't they know well you have to understand judges and lawyers make a lot of money off of modern day slavery and human trafficking and if there's nobody going through the courts because we have abolished slavery, so we've taken away that profit incentive, then that means they're going to lose money. That means that they're not going to have as many lawyers paying dues to them. So they have a financial stake in modern-day slavery as well. And I'm not saying this as an indictment of all attorneys because we had on Sister Akisha Shabazz, who is a a defense attorney in New York, former prosecutor, who is also uh, holding a Know Your Rights uh, event. I believe that's going down in New York City. Um, so I'm not indicting all attorneys. I'm just making statements of fact. Yeah, I'm with you on that, brother. Uh, this, that's all you're doing is presenting the facts. And, you know, Slavery as we know it today, modern-day slavery, is an economic development program. It's a job creator for specific people and groups and areas. Uh, you know, there's millions and millions of dollars riding on this in communities all over uh, the United States. Some places wouldn't even exist without the prisons there uh, as a money generator. And it's not limited to the prisons. It's also involving the tickets and fines and fees and bail and judicial and legal aspects of all of this. Uh, just for example, someone like a uh, Khalif Browder in New York State. When he was arrested, he was 16 years old. And in New York State, to incarcerate a teenager his age, uh, to put him in an adult facility like Rikers Island, is $350,000 a year. And that doesn't count the uh, legal costs or the court costs. $350,000 a year. That's a lot of jobs created, a lot of money flowing, and many of these people's livelihood depend on that. So you can't expect them to, uh, unless they're good people, moral people, you can't expect them to say, you know what, this is all wrong and I shouldn't be doing it. But, you know, Scotty, gaslighting or not, right now, 
I'm in Newcomerstown, Ohio. We're working on uh, developing land that was owned by the family of revolutionary abolitionist John Brown. Uh, on that location, it was a destination point for the Underground Railroad after 1865, where family members of John Brown would go to states like Alabama, bring back people who were enslaved under convict leasing, and then employ them here in Newcomerstown, Ohio, on this plant so that they could not be arrested again and give them the opportunity to immigrate elsewhere. Uh, that was happening right here where I'm at right now. Shirley Chisholm put the flag in the ground down the street from the, the compound where we're, where we're building on. Right there at the end of the compound begins the first Martin Luther King Drive, which was established in 1968. The very first Martin Luther King Drive. There is so much rich history here where I'm at right now in the abolitionist movement that whatever they say means nothing to me. I know what reality is, and history and present comes together right here in Newcomerstown, Ohio. Speaking of, Scotty, uh, I'd like to take a moment to ask for support in what we're doing here. We really need support right now. We have uh, resources that are coming in. As you know, checks are always in the mail like that. But at this point in what we're dealing with, uh, we need fiscal support. So, you know, I don't ask for this too often, only maybe four times in my whole life. And this is one of them. If you would like to help us at this point, uh, at this juncture, you can donate uh, tax deductible by sending through PayPal to prismaticdreams at gmail.com. That's spelled P-R-Y-S-M-A-T-I-C, dreams, plural, at gmail.com. We'll accept anything at this point. Uh, we just got to make do uh, for about a week or two, right? About a week or two. Speaking of, I'm here with one of the people, uh, the person who actually introduced me to all of this, uh, my brother Shaka Tsunami. Uh, here in Newcomerstown, Ohio. He was uh, part of an abolitionist movement here for many years and never realized how big the abolitionist movement had become. Like, it's it's been a hell of a surprise for him, culture shock. What's happening, my brother? How you doing? Can can you hear him? Yeah, just press star, star. Just press star, star. Uh-oh. Travel, please. Yes, we hear. Well, are you hearing me? Yes. Well, I can't hear myself. Yes, Brother Max, pleasure to be here, brother. Uh, and thank you for uh, you know, the introduction. I am Kashaka Sumani. And, um, and Brother Scotty Reed, pleasure to be with you, brother. Been learning from you. We have been gleaning from you, abolitionists. And we'll get into that and, and applying it to, to our track along the Underground Railroad. It's an absolute fact. Um, uh, what would you like to, uh, where would you like to begin? Of course, it's vast, it's long, we've been at it for. We are four generations active right now. We've never been off the trail. And like Brother Max said, uh, the first Martin Luther King Drive was created uh, December 1st. Actually, it started when they killed, yes, murdered Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. That's when the abolitionist community responded and created the first Martin Luther King Drive, December 1st, 1969. It actually took battle. Uh, you will find nothing here about that we shall overcome someday or hands up, don't shoot. That time, that is not an abolitionist theology. So what we did in 1968 was absolutely engage the oppressor, absolutely. And uh, well, and one that Martin Luther King drives a matter of respect. 
uh, for the people, and that's what was taught to me by our elders who actually did it. Uh, those my age, you know, I'm 55, we were children, and we watched this happen, and uh, that's what happened. And I mean, just more and more. Uh, and like you said, it's right attached to what we now know is the abolitionist compound, because this this facility in Newcomerstown, Ohio, uh, was founded in 1917 by the nephew of John Brown. His name was Samuel C. Clow, who became Captain Samuel Clow in the Union Army, and again engaged the oppressor. And uh, well, then by 1970, they brought uh, they went down to Anniston, the area of Anniston, Alabama, and uh, and recruited these former slaves, these people who were being beaten and whipped and, and involved in the uh, uh, what's that convict leasing program. What, uh, what we did was, what Captain Cloud did, along with the other abolitionists who were black and white, of course, were abolitionists of various cultures, they sent down a German in 1915 by the name of Beasley, uh, B-E-E-Z-Y. And he went down and recruited uh, the people and brought them back to Ohio and thus they enfranchised them in the James B. Cloud and Sons Company. Actually, when they did that, it was not easy. There was a legal battle. The oppressor did not like that in Alabama coming down there taking these folk, these slaves away. So there's a, there's a track record of that. There's a history. That's, it's all documented. It's all documented, which is key for us. We document everything. <laughs> everything. Uh, and I don't want to ramble. I can hit specific uh, situations. Chris, I'll start when you're done. Yes, sir. <laughs> We're in the same room, so if you hear any echo, forgive me. Scotty Reed? Yes, I'm here. I'm I'm here. Um, If you could tell... Yeah, if you could tell us, and it's a pleasure to speak with you, brother, but if you could tell us um, what type of funding do you need? Do y'all have a fundraising goal in mind? Max just mentioned the fundraiser, and of course I'll be helping to circulate that uh, through our network, Uh, but can can you tell us, you know, a little bit more about what's needed to be done? Yes, can you hear me? Everything. Uh, we've been using nickels and dimes and pennies throughout the years to get to this point. The goal at this point is $50,000 to restore this $800,000 property. And uh, but that's our goal. We, we would like to get up a GoFundMe page using technology to do this. And uh, that's our goal right now. Uh, to raise funds. See, we actually pay uh, the gas, the lights. You know, this, this is real. We actually have to do this to secure this property and to hold it as an abolitionist compound and to develop it. So we're at that point where we need to raise uh, uh, funds. There's, a, there's an economic component for freedom, and that's where we're at right now, those economic components. So $50,000 in the GoFundMe are the best way you can. That's it. As he mentioned, it's an $800,000 property. And uh, for us to uh, bring it together the way we want to, it's going to be, we're looking to bring, put together about 50000 over time. But the immediate goal at this point is within the next uh, two to four weeks, we hope to raise about $5,000 uh, just to start getting a lot of things that are necessary to begin this all uh, going. 
Well, as I was stating, it's very important that people who find this movement to be necessary, that you not only stand in solidarity through spirit, but it, it has to be funded. Okay, the enemy, the oppressor, this modern day slavers are very well financed. And so while, again, I don't want to diminish any of the gains we have made with this modern day abolitionist movement, we still have a long ways to go. And we're, we're up against some of the most well financed people in the world. So whatever people can give, I hope that they will give. We, we've even, you know, shared stories about the secret six during the abolitionist movement that, that funded a lot of the projects, uh, during pre 1865 slavery. And so going forward, we definitely, definitely need the financial energy of the people behind us. Absolutely right, Scotty. We've been working on shoestring budgets and uh, achieving miracles. Do it, doing it. Uh, I've already, we've already been in conversations here with the mayor of Newcomers Town, as well as one of the, uh, I guess you could call him a land baron here in Ohio, a gajillionaire by the name of Bob. Uh, what's his last name? Broad. Broad. Yes. yes well, you know, and you could do for that. He's a great grandson of W. Embrose, who formed the uh, Broad Company. These are these are abolitionist companies that, that we are speaking with. Yes, Bob Broad. Yes, yeah, we're working. Actually, actually, the property is valued at eight hundred thousand dollars. But because they're an abolitionist family, they've already taken off two hundred thousand dollars as they realize what, what who we are and what we're doing. Uh, so these abolitionist families are really uh, supportive. So we'll continue to work together until we own this property as abolitionists and do the things that we know we need to do to enslave it, period. Absolutely, period. Yes, uh, speaking to Bob Road was uh, pretty amazing. As I said, he's one of the barons here in Ohio. He's worth a gajillion dollars. His wife is a historian. His daughter is a professor. His daughter's wife, I believe he said, is the president at, uh, what was it, uh, the Technology Corporation. Bang, um, Gronk, that's Strowman, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, anyway, he's well connected, he's got friends who are senators and congressmen, and on and on and on. But we had a really good conversation. I was surprised to find out right here in the middle of Trump land there was this Republican abolitionist, and uh, it shocked me. So he's in full support of what we're doing. He's uh, was former owner of the property, this is where we're purchasing it from, and he's doing everything he can in his power to help us. Uh, make these things happen but we're building institutions and uh, the Black Talk Radio Network is an institution the community Black Talk Radio is a an institution I mean in another two or three years we could have 10,000 members and uh, that could be one of the huge ways that we're able to make these things happen the dream you were talking about going on tour and putting together a yearly event for instance with the millions for prisoners human rights march all of these things can be established right here in ohio we can do that we can bring together a conference of some of the best minds and thinkers uh in our our generation to come together and make some some ideas happen right here at this facility so yeah we definitely need all the help we can get to make these things happen uh those who are fighting against us have unlimited funds we've just got uh each other I would definitely agree with that. We have each other, but that's all we need. That's all we had before. That's all we've been using throughout these years, and that's what we have right now. And that's all we need. 
uh, abolitionists to come together and do our work. Basically that. Uh, but I would be remiss if I was saying mention certain things. Okay, so I'm going to say it right now because it's true. Uh, when we did this street in 1968, after that, one of our children was murdered. Okay, there's a price of freedom and it's death. So they murdered one of our children. It's no joke. We're actually really abolitionists as you are, and we're actually active. History, track work, record, all the things required to, uh, for freedom. But we have a martyr, and we can never forget this little boy. So I just want to toss that in there because it's true, it's sad, it's terrible, and we're going to keep fighting until we're free. We're just going to keep going. So we really appreciate our association with the new abolitionists, which to me is fascinating and beautiful because we have been working seemingly alone in this part of the country, which is Appalachia, Ohio, for a long, long time and have been actually engaged with this process. So it was a shock to even hear of the new abolitionists. And I'm going to tell you, at first, I didn't believe it. My phone's blowing up. People are emailing me. And so I didn't actually believe it. How could that possibly be? But when I looked at it, after I made a ridiculous statement on your page, there's no such thing as new abolitionists. I really looked into it for about three minutes, and I was shocked and pleasantly surprised to understand there are new abolitionists. It's beautiful and wonderful, and we need to learn from them as well, collectively do our work as abolitionists. Thank you. Try to say that. Stand out. Right, Scotty? Oh, right on, right on. I, I don't have anything to add to that. I mean, we are here. Um, we do stand on the shoulders of other people who did not have the social media tools that we have today to spread the abolitionist movement. Um, they didn't have Twitter, Facebook. We didn't have the Internet in the 1960s and when, or the 70s when Lee Wood put out his book about the 13th Amendment and prison slavery when Angela Davis and other Black Panthers were saying that slavery was never abolished. We you, Back then we had to rely on the, well, let me restate that. They did the best they could to educate the people. The Panthers did have a paper um, national paper that they distributed but what I'm saying is it's much easier for us now to spread that abolitionist movement and since I've been involved in the five, past five years we've seen it you know um, grow nas- uh, internationally you know as Max stated uh, the invitation to Ghana uh, because they are facing some of they're facing modern day slavery just like we are uh, many of the same um, tactics are being used against them. It's, it's all over the world. It's a global uh, movement, and I'm just happy to be a part of it and do my small part. Yes, sir, man. Uh, what I would like There you go. Well, what I would like to do is give Brother Shaka a chance to make any final comments. Uh, and then we have another announcement to make, which is a fantastic announcement. So, uh, Brother Shaka, if you have anything that you would like to add? Uh, well, can you hear me? Yeah. Uh, well, I'd like to add that uh, everything that we have been doing in the state of Ohio is well documented. And we encourage people to do their own research and to uh, continue the work that we've been doing for generations. I would just add that. Let's just do our best work and free as many people as we can. Right now, we're not waiting. We do not hesitate. We don't condone. We do, none of that do we do. 
we free slaves right now psychologically. That's why we are the information technology board, as Brother Scott Reed just said, technology is important. We want to grab some of that from the oppressor and use that against them to free slaves. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Shaka. Appreciate it, man. Um, the other announcement, Scotty, is a, a fantastic one. As we mentioned last week, uh, starting in uh, November, we became the official program for the Millions for Prisoners Human Rights Coalition. If you want to know what the new abolitionist movement is about, if you want to know details on what we're fighting and how we're fighting and what's going on, this is the place to come. And with that being said, we have invited uh, Sister Leila Aziz to be a part of the new abolitionist team here and to represent the Millions for Prisoners Human Rights March as she is now working as their communications and media uh, spokesperson. So we can, we're getting the information straight from the horse's mouth, so to speak, directly from the source. Uh, she'll be coming in to report on what's going on with the Millions for Prisoners movement as well as what she's involved in. Uh, like we mentioned last week, recently, she's involved with a voter reg uh, of registration drive for prisoners in California right now, where we're getting prisoners the opportunity to be able to vote on different topics that are going on in different candidates, which is a game changer in my mind. I've seen rec recent reports where they said in Virginia that very same thing happened, and it was one of the reasons why the uh, voting went the way that it did, because prisoners were being allowed to vote. So we'll be welcoming uh, Leila Aziz. I see we have a California number, 344. I'm not sure if that's her or not, but Leila, if you're on the line, just press star star to unmute yourself and uh, say anything and we'll hear you. Uh, but if not, we'll be scheduling to have her come in and begin with us next week. Looking forward to it. Looking forward to it. She's an abolitionist beast, man. I mean, like the Sleeping Dragon, her and Hannah X, you don't and so have many to tell others. Me I've been that. So I know hard. that. I know that. Uh, yes, man. It's, it's, so I'm looking forward to all of these things that are happening. Uh, there was a lot of bad stuff going on, as you said before. There have been some pitfalls, but I try to focus on moving forward on the positive aspects and I see the growth because we're here watching it that's what we do we document this movement and what's going on with it every week and we're never able to share all the stories that we're aware of uh, but you can find them by being a member of the community.blacktalkradionetwork.com and you can go and check out every week's planning page so you can see the stories that we were not did not have time to share well, there is one story if we are ready to start our news segment. Yes, sir. There's one yes, sir. story that I definitely want to share because we've been talking about it over the past couple of weeks due to things that's being said in the media, uh, particularly um, Trump's chief of staff. What What's that man's name? I forget his name. Kelly. Say that again. Kelly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, um, John Kelly, I believe is his name. So, yes. Yes. So he made those comments that the Civil War happened because people could not compromise and compromise. Or, yeah, what compromise, compromise. Yes. Um, and I mentioned last week, and I've been telling people on social media and providing them with the direct words from Abraham Lincoln. He was the grand compromiser. 
And he tried to compromise with the South. And I think it's incorrect for us to keep referring to that man as an abolitionist when he was a restrictionist. In his own words, he said that we want to restrict slavery to the states that they are currently practicing slavery. We don't want them to expand to the new territories that we stealing from the indigenous people. Okay, so it's incorrect. That's part of that mythology. That's how you sell lies is myth uh, 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 using myths and using people and holding them up to be something that they were not. So there was an article that came out in the National Review, which is actually a, a, a right wing leaning publication. But the article is on point. And the article was written by Dan McLaughlin on, it was published yesterday on nationalreview.com. Now, I'm just going to skip uh, some of the stuff that he's talking about. Um, he is also talking about the Democratic uh, Senator Tim Kaine made some comments in reference to what John Kelly said. And he said neither one of them was right about what they were talking about. Okay, and so, but anyway, getting to the part that I want to focus on, he says that the Civil War wasn't because of a lack of compromise. The Civil, no, that's Kane's comments. I'm not. I'm not even going to read his comments. But he said that both of them missed the point of the Civil War, and he says to summarize briefly what I've written before at great length. The American Civil War was the result of long-brewing North-South tensions over a battery of issues. The main driving force of those tensions and the main cause over which the South succeeded was slavery, as its leaders openly stated at the time. I will also say, point out that it was in their constitution as well, in the Confederate constitution, that that's why they were succeeding. Um, it says, but the Union mostly fought to preserve the nation against secession, and only a minority of its members, especially at the outset, saw the war as an anti-slavery crusade. Thus, while the war was about slavery, it's an oversimplification. It's neither honest nor reasonable to deny that slavery was the central cause of secession and therefore war since the Union was never going to accept its own dissolution without a fight. Compromises over slavery delayed the conflict, but they didn't cause it. By 1861, they probably couldn't have delayed it much further, if at all. Throughout the early history of the United States from the 1770s right up through the secession crisis of 1860-61, the nation made a series of compromises on the issue, many driven by the South's fear that its slavery-based economic system would be overturned if the roughly 50-50 slave state, free state political balance tipped in favor of the North. The original compromises in the era of the founding fathers included, one, deleting an attack on the slave trade from the Declaration of Independence. So that was supposed, that was news to me, that the original Declaration of Independence did uh, seek to abolish slavery. Number two, counting slaves as three-fifths of a free person for purposes of taxes on the states under the Articles of Confederation. 
the federal government was financed under the articles by per capita taxes on state governments. Three, using the same three-fifths formula in the Constitution, thus allowing southern states to get representation based on their slave populations, but not as much representation as if slaves had been counted as a full person. And four, allowing the federal government to ban the slave trade, but constitutionally preventing a ban from taking place before 1808. 20 years after the Constitution was ratified. So it was supposed, a, a, a ban on slavery was supposed to take place 20 years after the Constitution. But again, it says, he goes on to write, the compromises would continue as the nation grew. The Missouri Compromise of 1820, brokered by House Speaker Henry Clay of Kentucky, allowed statehood for the territory of Missouri as a slave state while admitting Maine, previously part of Massachusetts, as a free state. That 50-50 formula governed new state admissions for three decades. Arkansas with Michigan, Florida, and Texas with Iowa and Wisconsin and gave official blessing to an unofficial pattern in the years leading to the deal. Mississippi with Indiana, Alabama with Illinois. The Compromise of 1850, brokered again by Clay, admitted California alone as a free state despite the fact that its territory extended before below the 36 parallel line drawn by the Missouri Compromise but as the cost of pro-slavery concessions like an expanded federal fugitive slave act so it says that none of these compromises worked because the South still saw a problem. Not only was the North's population growing faster, but most of the territory available for future states lay above the 36th parallel. And I'll, I'll just close out with this. The last compromise is the one that we are still under, and that is the 13th Amendment. The Southern slaveholders or, or slavers did not believe Lincoln when he wrote that letter to Judge Stevens and said, hey, we're we, we not going to interfere with slavery. Okay? And oh, I might point out, like we shared last week, this isn't the original 13th Amendment. The original 13th Amendment with a constitutional uh, help me out, Max. I think I'm not remembering correctly. Constitutionally embedded slavery to the point where Congress could not touch it even uh, right. legally, where it could never be abolished. And that was called the Corwin Amer Amendment. Right, and Lincoln supported it. By the Senator Corwin. And, and Lincoln uh, previous supported to that, it. It was another 13th Amendment, because what we have now is the third. The mm -hmm. first one was actually uh, preventing any uh, political officers from holding titles of nobility and that mm -hmm. was the first 13th amendment then the second one was the corwin amendment and then finally we got the third one which has the exception clause which was actually presented to lincoln by uh a congressman here out of ohio who was an abolitionist and we mentioned him last week again i say i don't call i don't consider anybody to be an abolitionist that's going to compromise or compromise on the issue of, of of slavery in any form, okay, and that's just that's just a no go for me. There's no uh, what do they call it? There's no negotiation. I'm not sitting down with no slavers 
or any of their representatives and saying, okay, we want to reduce what y'all call mass incarceration. Yeah, we just locking up too many people. So we're going to put a cap on how many people can be in, in, in prison. All right. No, I'm not going for no compromises. I'm not negotiating with these slavers. I want slavery abolished yesterday, and that's the end of the story. There's no compromise here. And I refuse to acknowledge any compromiser as an abolitionist that would leave slavery in place in any form. Well, you sound a lot like uh, William Lloyd Garrison, where he said that there should be no compromise with slavery. And he had delivered that speech in New York in February 14th, 1854. There was a big argument about that. That was what divided a lot of people who considered themselves either anti-slavery or abolitionists. The uh, idea that you could have gradual emancipation versus immediate emancipation. Those who favored gradual emancipation very often did not consider the human cost. To them, that was just collateral damage, and they were on the right path, they thought, because eventually they would get rid of slavery. And on the other hand, people like William Lloyd Garrison and, and others like uh, Harriet Tubman felt that, no, this is costing people their lives. And every single day, the brutalities are, are just incredible. And it has to end right now, like you just said, that there can't be a compromise with slavery, that no one should be expected to sit across from the table and negotiate with the very man who just raped your wife or sold your children or killed your brother or your mother or your father. And it, it, it shouldn't be expected of anyone. Right, so, yeah, and you, we see, right in line of that. and here we are, what, 200 years later and still dealing with it? So, no, no to no, com no to compromising. Yes, sir. And as far as the article that you presented from the National Review, uh, John K Kelly and Tim Kaine, uh, I've, every time I read the National Review, I, I've had several instances where I go, this is one racist-ass magazine. This, this is a racist uh, uh, group that's putting these things out. It is. And, you know, they're uh, like you said, they're, they're right-wing, right-wing leading. But in this particular article, I read through that whole thing, and there are some parts that are correct, but a lot of it is pretty much just an apologist's version right. of, uh, for those slavers at the time and trying to uh, make it seem like, well, you know, people like Jefferson and Lincoln and Jackson and all these different people that were involved, they had good intentions and they knew they were doing wrong and they knew they were hypocrites, but they figured they could end this over time uh, because it was so embedded in the society at that point to literally just stop it like that would uh, ruin the economy, destroy the nation. But they didn't have any problems doing that to the South <laughs> to ruin their economy and destroy uh, what they had going on there. They used it as a tool. Right. There's a couple and, of and, and my purpose for sharing that is because it does document the various compromises. Yes, it does. Indeed, it does. There was a couple of things in there that I made note of that I want to read out. Uh, a couple paragraphs, if that's okay with you. Sure. There was sure. one where he said, Lincoln and other leading Republicans, as well as loyal Northern Democrats like Douglas, bent over backwards to offer concessions to stave off secession. Lincoln ran explicitly on the promise to leave slavery alone in the states where it existed, a promise he would reiterate in his first inaugural address and, and had run for the Senate in 1858 on the platform of pre preserving the black codes that depicted free blacks in Illinois 
of civil rights like voting and jury service. With Lincoln's quiet support, Senator William Seward, known to be Lincoln's incoming Secretary of State, proposed a battery of concessions, including a constitutional amendment to protect slavery. Now, this happened while Lincoln was the senator. No amendment shall be made to the Constitution which will authorize or give to Congress the power to abolish or interfere with any state with the domestic institutions thereof, including that of persons held to labor or service by the laws of said state. Now, that was signed, sealed, and delivered by the great emancipator himself, where he was willing to keep slavery forever. And then the other one, where it shows, like, they're missing a lot of information here. And, and Well, let me just read it. It says, would we, and he's talking about us today, would we have the courage today to face up to an atrocity that had ingratiated itself into the fabric of our society. Pro-lifers, the heirs of the stern-faced, Bible-thumping abolitionists, ask ourselves that question often, and often we come away disappointed. Few Americans fail that test more spectacularly than the nominally Catholic Kane, who stands foursquare for using taxpayer dollars to fund our modern, peculiar institution. It's easier for him to rail against injustices far in the past that don't require of him any hard choices. Now, there is so much wrong with that little paragraph. First of all, pro-lifers are not the heirs to abolitionists. So you could just take that right out of there. We're here right now. We exist, and we are the heirs to the abolitionists. Uh, also, where he was talking about, you know, how Cain is uh, funding, using taxpayers' dollars to fund our modern, peculiar institution. I am so insulted by him even saying that. Like, how are you going to call abortion the modern, peculiar institution at a time when we have the largest prison population in the history of humanity on planet Earth, where many of these counties and cities would not even have a dime if it wasn't for their constant use of the exception clause to enslave and to capture and to hold and store and collect monies on and work for free these millions of prisoners going in and out of these jails every single day, in and out of these prisons every single day. So he is missing every point you can imagine in his conclusion. And lastly, I would also point out, as normally they do, there was never, not in one instance in this entire article, any mention of the exception clause of the 13th Amendment. They did mention the Corwin Amendment, but not once did the so-called historian Come, did it come to his mind that there was an exception clause within the 13th Amendment, nor did he point out, out anything about convict leasing and how that worked through it? And I think he did that on purpose. Yeah, and never, like and, and never acknowledging that slavery was never abolished, never mentioning the 13th Amendment. So, yeah, I, I, I knew that they were a right-wing uh, publication. I forget the guy name that runs it now he inherited it from his father uh who was a segregationist um I, I just can't william crystal is his name you'll see him on fox news sometimes um but hey it's is 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 right for me to say with max being there on a brown compound how did john brown compromise with these slavers he didn't. He put a sword through their backs. Yeah, and he lost two sons doing it. 
that was a family affair and a lot of the people here in this city and in this area were part of the families who were involved in that raid on Harper's Ferry it was brothers and sons and fathers that were involved it was just a, no ragtag militia about, these were families that were fighting against that. yeah I'm talking about bloody Kansas look up the history of bloody Kansas the border wars Indeed, Scotty, you're right, man. So when we read these things from these so-called intellectuals, whether they be right-wing, left-wing, or the whole damn bird, you have to be very careful because they will wrap up some truth in a lot of lies. And as I said, I am so insulted that they would dare to even say that the abolitionist movement of pro-lifers is now the heirs of this slavery abolitionist. That is the most ridiculous and insulting thing that I can imagine at this point that they could have written. But they did it nonetheless. Yeah. And that's because they're completely and willfully ignorant of the truth of what's going on today, as ignorant as they showed by not even mentioning the 13th Amendment as if the or the exception clause as if it's not even there. You know, I I am I wouldn't put that label on myself, but I would never participate in an abortion. Okay? Uh, it's just it goes against my moral code politically I stay out of that because it's not it's on my list is freeing people who are walking around now on a prison plantation so you know people might look at that as being cowardly but hey we all got our list of priorities but my my response to the right wing pro-life crowd is after these babies born you don't care nothing about them and you probably want them to be born because you know if they non-white if they poor you're gonna make profit off of them on a prison plantation you're absolutely right scotty uh you, and you know ken williams uh the former detective who fought against the system and the whistleblower has been talking about that uh for the past few days in detail just some of the things that he's been saying is in one year, Child Protective Services screened 3.2 million children as potential abuse referrals. He says the word family can be foreign to some who were abandoned by their immediate family. And uh, there's a, a lot of stats that he's been dropping on that particular subject. For instance, saying that I think he said that 80 percent of the people who are in prison now were at one point foster children and I don't know where he got his right, name right. from but I think that's what he said on there right and yeah, let's not forget the kids for cash scheme in Pennsylvania I'm sure they ain't the only place it happened it's just the only one we know about so far yeah it's the only one that uh, has been publicized to the extent that it has indeed Scotty um, so yeah man I, I feel some kind of way about that when it comes to abortion, uh, I have feelings about that, and I have opinions, and there's, uh, and I understand the history of it. I know that during the early '70s, Lincoln, not Lincoln, uh, Nixon, literally used the abortion of black children as the poster child for why abortion should be legal. Uh, at that point, they thought that it was better that we be dead, uh, and even the uh, mother of uh, the genocide or the uh, what is it the the uh eugenics movement the, the eugenics movement even said very much the same thing that you know we don't want certain c 
communities to grow any bigger. We want to be able to get rid of them. I mean, it's Margaret Sanger. That's what it is. Margaret Sanger was one of the most racist people you can imagine. She was literally trying to enact a genocide. And Nixon helped her to get that done. There are, uh, there was a time a few years ago when I read an article where they said that in New York State, more children for the first time in history had been aborted than born. And I believe that was back in 2013. We lost a lot of lives through the abortion system, and it is extremely important uh, to address it. But for us here, as Scotty said, we have priorities. We got to work on one thing at a time. In this instance, there's people handling that out there, but they are not slavery abolitionists, uh, and they are not the heirs to the slavery abolitionist movement. You cannot get that thing twisted. Only someone who does not recognize what we're dealing with today would even dare say something like that. Agreed. And if I must make a confession, that is the only regret I have in my entire life. When I was 16 years old, my wife-to-be at the time then and I, uh, she got pregnant. And I participated in helping to kill my firstborn child. And I have raised 10 kids since then. 16 grandchildren and I know that right now that I could have fed that child I could have took care of that child everything would have been okay but I was 16 and I was stupid and it was during a time when they were pushing abortion as something that was no big deal just go ahead and do it it's only $350 and for $350 I killed my firstborn son well we all make mistakes Is the, the thing is do we learn from those mistakes so no judgment yeah, I'm just considered a confession, man. But, you know, we got other stories to cover today, and it's almost 9 o'clock. You want to take our first break now? And when we yes, come we back, we'll that. talk about some of these constitutional uh, violations that are going on in places like Newark. Yes, sir. You're, you're listening to New Abolitionist Radio. Uh, for the first time, I'm broadcasting right here from Newcomerstown, Ohio. And we're talking about modern-day slavery and human trafficking. We'll be right back after these messages. For podcasts and live program scheduling, visit us on the web at blacktalkradionetwork.com. Peace and welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio. Uh, We do take calls, as you well know, and if you would like to comment on what we've been talking about so far or ask a question, just press star star if you're already on the line to unmute yourself and then say something and we'll hear you. Uh, if not, and you're listening on the the live feed here at blacktalkradionetwork.com, you can call in at 866-510-9025. And uh, again, press star star to unmute yourself. All right. What's Brother the next Otis, story? Brother Otis, you here with something to say. Are you here today, Otis? Uh, we do have someone from 401. Thank you for calling in to New Abolitionist Radio. How are you tonight? What's happening, Jay? Hey, I just wanted to buzz in real quick and say I'm glad you made it uh, to Newcomer Town, Ohio. Yes. 
and that perfect name, right? Abolition, yeah, alive and strong, um, and taking every opportunity to talk about it to people is important. So that's all. I just wanted to say hi. <laughs> And, um, What's happening, J9? Hey, congratulations, by the way. I, I got your message that you were selected to give a presentation to the uh, your university there. Is, am I correct? Yeah, at Salve Regina. We went to a screening of the 13th. Um, they have a Southern Poverty Law Center student thing on um, campus, and they presented the 13th, and... I wore my new abolitionist uh, T-shirt and just interjected myself in the conversation just to ask them to consider this perspective and was asked by one of the sociology professors to come in one of her classes uh, a little bit later in the semester, spring semester, and talk to them about this idea of what a abolitionist in 2017 looks like, uh, what that is. And it's now and not just something from long ago. So, Congratulations. That is awesome. That is certainly awesome. Uh, Jay is calling, Jessica is calling from Rhode Island, which is the only state in the union that has actually abolished slavery in their constitu constitution without a caveat. Yeah. So we're looking towards the future with that, Jay, and we're hoping that you'll help us to spearhead a movement where we can find ways to use that. Uh, in things like RICO charges and lawsuits, because yes. right now that is going on in Providence, or rather not just Providence, but in the state of Rhode Island, there is modern-day slavery and human trafficking going on, including the arrest and incarceration of children for as much as $200,000 a year. The same thing with the incarceration of men and women and immigrants, because you have a large immigrant uh, population there in the area. So we can challenge these things using... Uh, the fact that you have no exception to slavery. So there is no exception for this, and we can challenge that. So I'm looking forward I, to working with I, you on that um, project. I do have a question for Jay Nine. Hey, Jay. Yeah. Hey, what's going on, Cotter? Hey, doing the best I can. I got a question for you. So you went to this screening of the 13th at the, um, at the university, and I don't understand why um what was that conversation like did they watch that film and still did not get that slavery was never abolished uh can you explain further well um so to give a little context um the school that i go to i'm going in graduate school for holistic counseling is Salve regina university which is a private catholic institution that is 70 percent uh white so a lot of the people who are there when you talk about issues that are affecting non-white people, to them it's like this exposure level that happens first. So sometimes that the 13th screening was, they were really, some of the students, it wasn't a lot of students who were there, but some of them remarked on how they didn't know about, um, oh, what, what, Alec. They didn't know about Alec, and they didn't know about corporations and the investment, and they didn't know about this large level scale, but they were still kind of stuck on, well, we can reform it, which I understand is also sticking point in people who do this work. Um, so I had to introduce them to this idea of it is legalized slavery. It's not like 
legalized slavery. It's not something that reminds us of legalized slavery. It just simply is that. So that was really hard for them to, I think, take in because I think their exposure level at this particular university is so multiple steps behind where I think folks should be at an institution where it's a Sisters of Mercy so-called institution where things like racism, poverty, and injustice are part of our core value or mercy mission. Um, but, but the documentary itself, I don't think actually, there's only, I think, two times right. that the documentary really goes into that to highlight that point. Right. So I can see how people who aren't exposed to this and have been down the rabbit hole. Like, I remember when I thought differently before I had my mind open, you know, this would have been a hard concept for me to understand. And like I said, when the lady talks about cremigration, I just, I cannot even deal with that word <laughs> because it's ridiculous um, in the particular, in the film. And I just, you know, I think the film does touch on it, but they don't touch on it to an Enough. extent yes. where it's easy for people to translate what's going on. Well, that, um, that Jay... Yeah, Jay, that's because they didn't have, except for one guy, and that was the white guy who yeah. hosts the radio program. Yeah. He's the only one I would have considered an abolition. The rest of them were mass incarceration reformists. That's why. Yeah. So, I, yeah. I we do have to be patient when we're speaking to people, because we got to realize that they've been programmed all their lives with the lie that slavery was abolished through school, curriculum, and through films yep. like Steven Spielberg's Lincoln. And they and they just simply uh, have been programmed with a lie. And I can understand how it might be hard for them to process that new bit of information. You know, you yeah, said, it, Jay, that it was difficult for you to understand, uh, you know, at, at one point, and I guess a lot of people would say that, but that's actually not true. The argument itself is extremely easy to understand. It's like that commercial where they go, this is an apple. You can call it this yeah. or that, but it's still an apple, okay? It's real simple to understand, but it is so far away and against what you've been led to believe for generations completely yes. on an opposite spectrum and it requires you to have a different perspective and that is where the difficulty comes in because it's not easy yeah, to just change your mind all of a sudden yeah and what I had kind of expressed to them as well is that you know what I had to do which for me I guess it wasn't difficult but nobody had ever come and said by the way everything you think you know is actually a distorted lie so here's the reality. You have to really suspend your belief system and really look at what's in front of you, not what you want to see or not what you would like to see. Actually look at what is in front of you. And once you just look at it, then you can kind of see it super plain as day. Um, you just have to suspend your belief. And the other kind of issue as well is that I'm working in the school system for my internship 
And I'm sitting there watching the prison, the pipeline thing happen. Whereas, did you know that the correctional, like the Correctional Officers Association or something, actually has a program that takes at-risk students or students who have behavioral issues, and they take them to the adult correctional facility in the state of Rhode Island, and it's not like a scared straight, but they sit them down with folks who are incarcerated and have, like, this conversation, and the kids have to go through the actual processing of what it's like to be, um, you know, behind the wall. And the scared straight 2.0? Yeah, and, it's, and it's, it's seen as a good thing. And so that is, to me, mind-blowing. And when I heard that, all I could say in the limited position that I'm at is, I have some very strong feelings about that. Can you tell me what, what, what the purpose is of that? You know, so I'm right. curious to know why these programs exist. What, why are we introducing middle school students, so we're talking fifth to eighth grade where I live, why are we introducing middle school students who are already flagged as having problematic issues and behaviors? Why are we even bringing them near a prison? Why? You know, what is, how is that going to help? It's not. It's just going to traumatize introduce them. them. Yeah, yeah. So that's also kind of this interesting idea behind, you know, legalized slavery and getting these kids really, really young, labeling them young, um, getting them primed and ready to where that's where they're going to go. And then now they're already familiar with it. So that's this new, this new perspective that I have on the school to prison pipeline because I'm in these particular programs as my internship, um, at least for this semester. So Terrible. And, you know, there's been Terrible. lawsuits against entire school systems that are using prison, school-to-prison pipelines, like in Mississippi, sued successfully, mind you, uh, over this very yes, same well, thing in other states as well. That, um, a cop in the school last month made my son go into a panic attack. There's a police officer in my son's high school, and something was going on with my oldest son. And, you know... He was just sitting there, minding his own business, just waiting for the particular dean to come talk to him. And the police officer comes up to him and is like, oh, what's your name and why are you here? And my son was like, I don't have to tell you that. And so this police officer put my hand on my son and said, oh, you're not going anywhere. This is a man with a badge, a gun, um, handcuffs, and pepper spray on his belt. With and messing with the wrong kid. <laughs> Because, A, the mother's an abolitionist, hardcore, and the son has been learning about abolitionists since he was like 10 years old or 8 years old. And he knows you do not, that, there was no need, and in the long story is these three men bullied my son, cornered him in a room to the point where he had a freaking panic attack, and he took the hell off, called me in a state, I was able to talk to him, park him at the um, fire station, because he, he was... Like, they intimidated him to the point where he, fight or flight, he had to leave. Because you have three grown men cornering a 15-year-old boy, a black boy, who was, like, almost six feet tall. So they're already, like, waiting for him to 
like, freak out so they can put their hands on them because that's what they do, you know? And then there was a police officer when I came to pick my son up. I had to file a police report. The police officer asked me, well, what's his issue? That is none of your business. It's okay. I've got my son. It's all right. It's taken care of. But these are the people who are in charge of our children. They believe that police help the situation. When the police clearly escalate the situation, and we all know it, and it's going on, and, and even in Newport, Rhode Island, it's going on. That's what slaves yes, did. That issue with a quickness um, at the end of that school day. But I'm lucky I know these things, right? Like, I'm lucky I have this information. Right. Man, thank, thank you so much for Sorry. sharing that <laughs> with us, Jay. And uh, I, indeed, we are looking forward to hearing what happens with your uh, presentation at the university there. It's, it's an opportunity. Make the best of it, indeed. Yeah. If you need me, I you know I'm always here. Nation, so. <laughs> awesome, right, awesome. Review myself. Thank you. I really appreciate all you do, and I tell everybody about New Abolitionist Radio as often as I can. Thank you. Thanks, Jay. Talk to you soon. All right. I'm, I'm unit. <laughs> you know, Scotty, that leads to the story that I wanted to get in. Uh, it's a two-part story, and uh, it talked about, you know, what these police think. We have been talking about the, like for instance, police chiefs. We have reported here on so many different police chiefs who were corrupt. We're not talking about the sergeants, or you know the 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 officer friendly down the street. We're talking about the chiefs of police on many occasions who were completely corrupt. And one of the stories coming out of New Jersey is exactly that. Uh, the story that I have here comes from the Washington Post. Uh, I think we mentioned it before. But we didn't go into too much detail, but. Uh, it says the former chief of a small township in New Jersey has been arrested on federal hate crimes and civil rights charges for what federal authorities describe as a pattern of racist comments and behavior, including slamming an African-American teen boy's head into a metal door jam and saying that black people are like ISIS. His name is Frank Nusera Jr., 60. Uh, he had been the chief of Bordertown Township Police Department and was arrested, and the charges against him were unsealed uh, Wednesday. The allegations are notable for the blatant racism they describe in law enforcement in a law enforcement leader. According to a criminal complaint in the case filed in federal district court in New Jersey, Nusera frequently referred to African Americans by racial slurs and espoused violence towards them. In November of 2015, for example, when he was talking to a subordinate officer about an African-American man he believed to have slashed the tires of a police vehicle, Nosira said, I wish that nigga would come back from Trenton and give me a reason to put my hands on him. I'm tired of him. These niggas are like ISIS. They have no value. They should line them all up and mow them down. I'd like to be on the firing squad. I could do it. And that's what the complaint said. Nusera also used police dogs to intimidate African Americans, bringing canines to high school basketball games when his department was providing security and positioning them near the entrance to the gym, federal authorities alleged. Efforts to reach uh, Nusera's family members were not immediately successful, and no lawyer was listed for him in court records. Federal authorities said Nusera retired from the police department shortly 
after New Jersey's Attorney General was informed of the investigation 14 who Sarah was reportedly shot in the leg by his own gun after some kind of interaction with a preteen at the municipal building. Like over and over again, this chief of police has been taking his brutality out on teenagers, teen black young men. Civil liberties advocates have criticized Attorney General Jeff Session for trying to undo efforts of the Obama administration to mandate reforms at police departments. President Trump's top law enforcement uh, official has ordered his department to review all the court supervised reform agreements it has with police departments nationwide, saying it was necessary to ensure that these PACs do not work against the Trump administration's goal of promoting officer safety and morale while vi fighting violent crime. Uh, I'm not even going to read the rest about Obama and Trump because this goes beyond political. Uh, one of the things that they don't mention in here at all, and we always harp on this, is the fact that when you find out that somebody like a police chief is guilty of such crimes, it should be immediate that you research all of his cases that he's been involved in because if he shows this type of racism, racism, this type of hate, this type of brutality then it's very likely he didn't begin the minute that you found out he was doing it and very likely that throughout his entire career he has been falsely incarcerating brutalizing or even killing people behind this type of ideology Scotty? I read that story earlier this week and this is what I want to point out and I haven't issued this call in a while but if you call, if you think of yourself, if you a slave catcher today and I know some people might find that term offensive but it's accurate but if you a slave catcher today but you want to think that you are serving the community and you're a good police officer and you're in it for the right reason and whatnot. When you witness this sort of stuff, you have to tell. You have to. You have to document it. You have to start building your own case against these people, and then you have to report them. Okay? Now, quite often, this does not happen, but that is how this particular police chief got busted, was that one of the rank-and-file officers reported him to the Justice Department, and that's how the investigation got opened up. I'm reminded, and again, these stories are far and few, okay, but I'm reminded of the Oregon, in the Oregon town, I, I forget the name of the town, but this patrolman had arrested this black woman. They had her in the jail. She had been drinking. I think she was arrested for DUI or something like that. So then, the police chief comes back there and starts mocking the woman and and making monkey sounds and, and, you know, that kind of stuff. And the officer reported him, and he was forced to resign. You know how that town reacted to that officer? They ran his wife out the, off the road, started harassing him. Even the mayor of that town said, oh, the police chief was a good guy and all, and, 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 and just demonized the one person who did the right thing, who was practicing justice. I'm also reminded of, I think his name is Joe Glass out of Baltimore, who testified against two officers after he reported them who were beating a handcuffed uh, a black person black men were beating him and he reported them and then what happened to him 
He got ran off the job. They started harassing him, leaving rats on his windshield, uh, going after him for frivolous stuff. And, and so then we had the officer in New York who recorded the police captain or commander who was telling them to go out there and target black boys ages 16 to 21. Some, somewhere along that range. And he recorded this guy, and he said quotas are illegal, and he reported them. And, and, and so that's how that person got exposed. So if you don't tell me you know good cop, and you witness blatant racism, blatant sexism, just all kind of manner of evil, and you keep your mouth shut because that makes you complicit. Okay, so we need to hear more stories like that. So if you're a cop out there, if you're a police officer out there, and you joined because you want to protect the community from criminals, well, I would suggest you start protecting us from the criminals in your ranks by documenting and reporting. Max. I'm with you on that one, and shout out to uh, once again to Ken Williams, one of the officers who did exactly that, and now is at the forefront of the fight for civil rights, and is even gradually becoming an abolitionist. Uh, we have been in communication now for a couple of years, and I, I think that he's really coming to terms with the idea that this is slavery and human trafficking, and has pretty much said as much on a, a number of occasions. But also, you know, this type of activity is not just familiar to the officers in the department, the Department of Justice is aware of what's happening in New Jersey. Back in 2014, around the time that he was shooting himself in the leg over in New Jersey in an altercation with a preteen at a courthouse, uh, this report came out. And this comes from uh, WNewYorkCity.org. And it says, a three-year-long federal investigation found the Newark Police Department engaged in a pattern of unconstitutional policing. That's a very powerful statement. A pattern of unconstitutional policing. We've been hearing these, this statement from a variety of counties and cities regarding the DOJ reports. And this was early on before well, Max, don't the you Ferguson think, uh, report came excuse, out. Excuse me for it a says second, that Max. included excessive use of force and inadequate accountability pretty words, meaning that cops were getting away with murder. I was just about just to say that, Max. I had myself <laughs> right. muted, and I was like, well, Max, this con unconstitutional policing, isn't that a politically correct way of saying they were breaking the law? Yep. All of this is politically correct language to uh, water down what is actually happening. According to this document, this police of uh, this the Department of Justice uh, report on Newark, New Jersey. Basically, they were saying that these cops are violating your constitutional rights every single day, and it's race-based. They're using excessive force. They're shooting and killing and brutalizing people, and nobody's doing anything about it. And that came directly from the Justice Department. Uh, the investigation was led by the New Jersey U.S. Attorney Paul Fishman and the Justice Department's Civil Rights Division. Here's some of the key findings. They said, 75% of pedestrian stops documented by the NPD were unconstitutional. 75% of the stops were unconstitutional, violating citizens' First and Fourth Amendment rights. The Fourth Amendment, you, if you don't know, is the uh, 
protection from illegal searches and seizures. So they're saying that they were literally robbing people. Investigators say it's likely many of the illegal stops resulted in unconstitutional arrests. Black residents make up 53.9% of North's population, but accounted for 85% of the reported stops and frisks. 79.3% of the North Police Department arrests. More than 20% of officers' use of force was found to be excessive. One out of every five of y'all was beating the hell out of somebody for no reason at all other than you are some kind of damn monster who can do this during the day and then go hug your wife and child at the end of it. A pattern of theft, they said, by officers exists in the department's gang and narcotics units where officers would routinely, routinely steal money and other belongings from those they arrest. The study covers the 2009 through 2012 when Cory Booker was the mayor. In this statement, Booker said that the problems cited are serious and decades long and shared by cities across the country. Man, those are some weak ass excuses, boy. He said, when I was mayor, we worked with the ACLU to implement reforms that set a national model for stopping for transparency and emphasize police community relations. As mayor, Booker welcomed the DOJ's investigation into the police department's practices, calling it free consulting, but he was resistant to federal oversight. You can read the rest of this article at New Abolitionist Radio, but uh, I think you get the uh, core of what we're saying here, that in 2014, while this sheriff was thinking that we all niggas need to be lined up and mowed down and he could do it himself and was abusing teenage children and preteens, the Department of Justice was investigating the city of Newark, New Jersey, finding these constitutional violations were rampant, were race-based, uh, filled with brutality and potentially even deaths, and that they were robbing and stealing from people. And uh, even today, no one has done any time for that. Now, did you mention, I, 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 I'm sorry, I was a little distracted looking at some of the other segments coming up, but did you say Cory Booker was mayor at the time? Corey was Booker was the mayor at the time, and he was also involved at that time by his own efforts, a uh, 1-800-SELL-YOUR-MAMA campaign, where he was offering $1,000 to anybody of any age in Newark who would rat on someone saying that they had a gun. He even said in the video that, uh, you know, all you got to do is call us. You don't got to give us your name, and we'll give you $1,000 if you report a gun from your neighbor or your friend or somebody around you. And we'll come down and arrest them. We don't even uh, need to have any charges. We'll just come and arrest them and get the gun and pay you $1,000. So, you know, this had gotten to the point where some people were exploiting it. You had 12-year-olds calling up on yeah. their fathers so they could get the $1,000. You had uh, rival gangs calling up on each other to get them disarmed. It was pretty ridiculous. You know, I um, subscribe to a lot of stuff. Um, while I'm not active, technically, I'm a member of the color of change. I don't send them no money or nothing like that. I, I may circulate their petitions and sign their petitions. So one time I got an invitation to a town hall call featuring Mr. Cory Booker. Uh, Senator Cory Booker and during the whole time on the call he was pushing Hillary Clinton and the sycophants all the butt kissing that was going on on that call was disgusting me y'all supposed to be about change how this 
I'm about to say a word I shouldn't say. How this man represent change? And he on here supporting the candidacy of uh, uh, one half of a duo who increased uh, modern day slavery uh, occupation by hundreds, almost a thousand percent. Who took, who called uh, poor mothers lazy in order to justify taking $1 billion from the social safety net and transferring that over to where they were going to, uh, you know, contract with these private prisons. The exact amount. And and so I was like, see, this, this is what's wrong with some of us in these movements, man. We look at skin color and we don't recognize that all skin folk ain't kin folk. We want to think everybody look like us is our friend and got our best interests at heart. But when you look at their record and you look at the things that they support, you will find that they're not much different other than the skin color than those people that you clearly identify as your enemy. Again, I do not see color when it comes to the abolitionist movement. Either you a slaver or you an abolitionist. Which one you going to be? So it's not surprising to me to hear that Cory Booker, one of them mass incarceration reformists, I'm sure his name will be floated around as a candidate for president in 2020, if not for president as the running mate of another slaver who shares our skin tone, and that's uh, Kamala Harris who argued to the Supreme Court, we can't let all these prisoners go. What you mean? We Y'all trying to deplete us of our slave labor. Of course, she didn't use those exact terms. She used some co- politically correct terms. So don't be, don't, I'm just saying, if you're going to be an abolitionist, if you're going to say that you're for justice, you can't be compromising with people who have clearly participated in modern-day slavery and human trafficking. I don't care if they purple, green, or whatever. I don't care. When I saw the video of his, uh, you know, 1-800-SELL-YOUR-MAMA thing going on, I knew right then that he was not one on our side. Uh, Because that's something you expect to hear about in Nazi Germany during World War II. Uh, it was completely illegal, completely unconstitutional, and extremely dangerous, and yet he was doing it. So I knew he, what he was about then. And as you know, Jersey is my home state. My wife was born and raised in Newark, New Jersey. I, I visit, we visit often as we can. And I, I'm myself from Patterson. So we know New Jersey politics and how those things work over there. So yeah, Cory Booker is not uh, a friend of this movement, to the best of my knowledge, at this point. He's not. He's clearly um, part of the reformer class, the class that's trying to keep slavery from being totally abolished because as we were just talking about in that very first article about the compromise, they worried about crashing the economy. I don't think people realize how much today's economy depends on slave labor. I don't think they really do. And if well, it's the not next, their labor, but, it's warehousing their bodies. The next stories might help to put that in there, too. But you're right. The warehousing of the bodies is the core money. <clears throat> I mean, they don't need you to do anything else. They just need you to be alive and be in a cell. And a check will come in for every person that's in that cell. That's how it works. 
for instance, you know, we was talking about Cleef Browder, $353,000 a year. In New York, to incarcerate an adult, it's like $160,000 a year. It's ridiculous. It's, it's a bounty on people's heads. And if you work on top of that, then that's extra money. And that extra money is in the tens of tens of billions of dollars. And one of these stories comes out of, uh, it's recent too, it's out of Arkansas, where one of these politicians are using slave labor from a rehab work camp. You know, we've been talking about these rehab work camps. We talked about this one, didn't we? Or is this a different one? I I know the story you're talking about where a person actually got killed, but but is this a different one? Yes, this is a different one. This is not the chicken farms. Uh, This just came out October 31st, 2017. It's from publicradio.com. Org, and it says uh, it's by Amy Julia Harris and Shoshana Walter. This story was originally published by Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting, a nonprofit news organization based in San Francisco Bay Area. Um, one of Arkansas's top politicians relies on unpaid workers from a local drug re- rehabilitation center at his plastics company, which makes docks. Uh, floats sold at Home Depot and Walmart. Hendrick Plastics, owned by Arkansas State Senate Majority Leader Jim Hendren, partners with a rehab program under scrutiny for making participants work grueling jobs for free under the threat of prison, according to interviews with former workers and a new lawsuit. Courts from across Oklahoma and Arkansas send men to drug and alcohol recovery programs known as DARP. And we've talked about DARP before. So this is where a politician is using DARP. As part of a growing effort to divert offenders from overcrowded prisons and into treatment. But a recent investigation by Reveal from the Center of Investigative Reporting found that the rehab and others like it are little more than a lucrative work camp for private industry. Henderson's involvement shows that the beneficiaries of these programs stretch from Fortune 500 companies to the highest levels of state political power. At DART, defendants receive a little actual addiction treatment. Instead, uh, they receive little actual addiction treatment. Instead, they work full-time jobs in factories and chicken processing plants. The companies pay discounted rates to the rehabs for the labor, according to a lawsuit filed in Arkansas last week. And uh, a similar program, which we've talked about, Christian Alcoholics and Addicts in Recovery, known as CARE, brought to our attention by our brother Otis uh, a couple of weeks ago. Was the that men make nothing. The unpaid, Scotty. Was that one in Oklahoma, the one Otis brought to us? What state was that? Do you remember? Not off the top of my head, but okay. I can probably find it after we, uh, when we finish with this. The unpaid work may violate state labor laws and the 13th Amendment ban on slavery, which Scotty referenced about the judge saying, oh, I'm glad we're not violating the 13th Amendment. She was very likely talking about this system of care and dark. The unpaid worker may violate state labor laws and the 13th Amendment ban on slavery, according to legal experts. Since Reveal's investigation, CARE, spelled C-A-A-I-R for researchers, has become the subject of two other class action lawsuits and three government investigations. CARE is modeled after D-A-R-P, DARP. A number of foreign program participants confirmed that Henron Plastic uses unpaid labor from DARP. Henron is the company's owner and president, a role that's central to his political identity. Henron, a Republican 
has called job creation his number one priority in office and has been touted the economic benefit his has been touting the economic benefit his company provides i've been creating jobs for over 20 years hedron says in his campaign website a county cannot survive if it cannot feed itself and make things neither hendron nor his company responded to calls or emails for comment you can read the rest of this story on new abolitionist radio i think that we have heard enough to be able to discuss some of it so scotty yeah quite disgusting again how can you compromise with people like this I mean, what's the compromise? Well, we're just not going to put as many people into slavery as we're putting in now. How do you compromise with that? And if you are unemployed person out there or underemployed person out there, I'm talking to labor unions. And, and you know, we did meet with um, a labor activist when we were at Chronic 2017 in Greenville, South Carolina. If you are in a labor union, you should be seeing prison slave labor as a direct competition for jobs. Okay? And and so I mean, I just I can't compromise with with slavers, man. I just can't do it. When I see something like this going on and 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 then knowing that most people um they can't get a job with these people if they're not in prison, if they don't have a record, but they're more than willing to put you to work once you own a plantation. And, and and you know, in some of these cases, the people, like this story Otis shared with us, we were talking about where they were sending them to the chicken plant to process chickens. They haven't even been convicted. Okay? So, man, that's all I got to say on that, Max. You know, the other part of this, and the more recent uh, part of this story is from November 3rd, Scotty. Uh, it says, last week, Arkansas attorney Timothy Stedman sued Hendron's Plastic for profiting off a pervasive scheme of slavery. Quote, unquote, a pervasive scheme See? of slavery. Not like slavery, not might be slavery, but slavery. See, people, now, the plastic man. The task is not that hard, people. Uh, I'm, well, let me restate that. It's not impossible to end slavery. Because, again, as long as we keep spreading this message that slavery was never abolished, pointing them to the 13th Amendment, pointing out this case over here, that case over there, this case right here in front of you, there are some people in positions of power who are starting to see that. Okay, they are starting to see that we're seeing juries and civil recall lawsuits seeing this as Eve, that evil institution. I don't care for no peculiar. Uh, this is evil. Okay, and so say that again. Read that part again. Here you have the state attorney general acknowledging something in slavery. Yes, uh, the Arkansas attorney Timothy Stedman sued Hendrens Platt for profiting off a pervasive scheme of slavery. Now, the plastics company, owned by Arkansas State Senate Majority Leader Jim Hendren, is suing Stedman for defamation. And this is something that is revealing to me. The company and the, you know, Jim Hendren is now uh, suing them in turn for defamation. 
And the lawsuit comes from an investigation by Reveal, with the Center of Investigating Reporting found that men and women at drug rehabilitation centers are being sent to work at private companies for free under the threat of prison. And as we read down the story, we see that his company, uh, the uh, Jim Hendren, is saying we're paying $9 and change an hour for this. Like, we're not getting free labor. Somebody, this prison, is getting $9 and some odd uh, change per hour for everybody that we're employing, and it's up to 50 men at any given time. There's 20 working on his, uh, at his company from these prisons or these uh, rehab uh, centers. So he's saying, I'm paying the money, and you're telling me I'm a slaver, but I'm paying $9.25 Who's he paying the money to? So the prison... He's paying it to the rehab centers. Okay. The rehab centers are keeping it all. So that's human trafficking. The other people are guilty of human trafficking. They should be. You see what I'm saying? That's convict leasing. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the quote says, Henry says it paid the rehab nine twenty-five an hour for each worker as much as it paid its own entry-level employees, according to the suit. <clears throat> he said that the company would stop using rehab center known as DARP. So he's saying, he, I'm not going to use this anymore, but he's also saying to this company, this is defamation and it's hurting his company because he's actually paying for what he's receiving. The problem isn't with his company. The problem is with the rehab centers who are sending these men and women out to work in these facilities and then taking every single dime of what's being paid for their labor and keeping it for themselves. Did and the they're providing all these chicken restaurants all over the country, like Kentucky Fried Chicken and Popeye's Chicken and things like that. And you're helping to uh, keep this going on daily when you purchase these products. Did, did the rehab center force him to contract with them to get this labor? I'm thinking... Scotty, no. that he's getting like a two dollar break an hour, like he would normally be paying eleven. And he don't an have hour. to provide them with insurance. He doesn't have right. to pay no uh, workman's comp or or anything None like that. that. Okay, so and if they die, so what? Yeah. So my point Some is, he's willingly. Nobody twisted his arm and made him take advantage of of these people. Nobody did made him do anything. And and so if he had a problem with the rehab, then he would have never did what they were doing. He would have never contracted with them. But this suit should be expanded to include the rehab center and the victims. Y'all should be suing. Yes, yes, indeed. Uh, and you know, we talked about people dying. You there's no, no insurance, like the firefighters who are prisoners. Uh, we reported on one man and one woman dying in the past few years while fighting fires, and uh, we didn't read anything about them being compensated or insurance or getting a fireman's funeral. They died as prisoners. And the same thing just happened recently here in the Alabama Department of Corrections where Frank Dwayne Ellington died on one of these jobs working at Koch Foods Poultry Plant in Ashland as a work-release inmate. And uh, he died as a prisoner. And there is no compensation being mentioned here at all uh, regarding his death. So they're sending men in there to die because there's no protections. They don't have anybody they got to answer to about what they're doing. I suspect, Max, another element to the problem is that the victims don't know that they are being slaved out. They don't know. They think it's legal. They think it's legal, and they're not aware that slavery was never abolished, and they're probably never heard of convict leasing. 
And so that's why, you know, it's important to do public education so the victims will wake up themselves, like we have seen on with the prisoners taking part in the Human Rights March. And, you know, of course, obviously they weren't there uh, with us physically, but they supported it. They helped organize it. Okay, and and so shout out, shout out to those people. So our education has to not only be with the general public, but the victims themselves, because I suspect they don't even know they're victims. Uh, we do got a call, Max seven five seven. That might be Otis seven five seven. Thank you for calling in the New Abolitionist Radio. Give us your name and go ahead with your question or comment. Yes, man, it is me. How are you gentlemen doing today? Best week. What's happening, brother Otis? Yeah, look, I, it's kind of touched on what I, uh, and I heard you dancing around a little bit too. Yes, this is the same thing I tried to say when we were discussing chicken farm. That this goes beyond, and Scott is correct, RICO Act should be involved. But you're going to find out the federal government's going to do the very same thing it did with uh, Holder and Lynch. They know this is the international. This is a national-wide problem, and I'll tell you why. I mentioned, if you go back to when we were talking, I mentioned to you that here in the state of Virginia, I ran across this from an assembly of an electronics thing based on the very same thing. This guy had gotten in trouble, told me where he was working. I asked him about what what was going on. He told me where he was going, so I look it up and I find out it's a rehab place but they're actually doing electronics for Raytheon with missiles and it's connected to the Virginia State prison system doing basically the same thing now I noticed Max caught on when he said the politician is now saying oh but I pay them so I'm not in it the truth is he helped change the laws to be able to allow it to go on same thing happened in Oklahoma do you remember remember in the midst of the article it tells you the politicians who actually created the law in Oklahoma were shocked because the now active politicians are skirting the law to allow this to go on because the law actually had mechanisms in it to not allow this to happen. In other words, they know that that Christian place is not paying those people. It's simply a paper transaction. The money is not actually going to the workers, just like we found out they weren't paying Social Security, they weren't paying into a FICA, or any of that. So I'll mute myself, but you, you get what I'm saying. This is a RICO problem that's national. It's not yes, just sir. a regional thing, and I said it when we were talking before. This one right. thing about the prison industrial complex is no different than McDonald's. Franchising is what it does. Right. This is a, a way we can get some of these people out of power and into prisons themselves. See, this is these RICO charges against. Them. This is what reform looks like. Okay, abolition looks entirely different. Okay, this is why we know that they're not trying to rehabilitate anyone. They're trying to exploit them. Because I'm sure there are people out there living on the edges of society that could have used those $9 an hour job. But you didn't hire nobody off the street. You went and exploited captive labor. And I, I go along with that on Scotty. And I tell you something else that gets me. It talks about American Bar Association. So you can't tell me that you can go to school for six or seven years past the bar 
and you can't figure out what and and I hate to step on toes, but I've gotten to the point now. My age, might as well stop licking around the jar if you're either going to consume it or you're going to leave it the hell alone. These people have to know that this is a national problem. You can't be a prosecutor for five or six years and then come out here and tell me you want to do private work. You can't tell me you do justice work with the Equal Justice Project and you don't understand that these are politicians and people with money that are purposely skirting the law. To me, it's no different than setting up a uh, uh, what do you call these things? Banking, uh, uh, offshore banking. You're finding a way to skirt the law and still make money, and you're doing it with prison labor. Right. Well, you know, Scotty and Otis, we got about 10 minutes left and three segments to go. Uh, I don't know if we're going to be able to get all three of them in here, but we had to really get some of these stories out. So, Scotty, any suggestions? Um, you yes. want to roll this out? Uh, I'm sorry, give me just a second. Uh, yes, let's hit as many as we can. The abolitionists and profile, I'm, I'm getting to the page now. Um, if you want to go ahead and do the yes. do the rebellion. Uh, rebellion. Yes, sir. Yes. Uh, one of our three segments is For Freedom's Sake, A History of Rebellion. And I've been trying to show different angles. So today I'm doing that again by remembering the Mississippi Massacre cold case of 1886, senseless murders for the spill of molasses on a white man. It's an instance where blacks tried to use the courts against whites in 1886. There is not much known about who ordered the Carroll County Courthouse Massacre that occurred March 17, 1886. An article in 2011 by Mississippi newspaper reported during the mid-20th century civil rights movement more than 100 Mississippi African Americans were victims of assault or murder. None of the perpetrators were identified or convicted for a crime. The massacre was a mass attack upon a group of African Americans in the courtroom or on the courthouse grounds. Ten people were killed and later 13 more would die from their wounds. The trouble started in January 1886. Two brothers, Ed and Charlie Brown, who were half black and half American Indian, were delivering molasses to a local saloon in Carrollton, the county seat. The young men bumped into Robert Moore, a white man, and spilled molasses on his clothing. Robert Moore became hostile, and an argument quickly erupted. However, at the time, the matter seemed to have been resolved, but it did not end there. Moore told his friend, James Monroe Liddell, who was an attorney, about the incident. Liddell decided he would handle the matter with the Browns on behalf of his friend. In February, Liddell confronted the Brown men and accused them of deliberately spilling the molasses on Moore. A verbal confrontation between the three men took place and Liddell attempted to assault Ed Brown, but bystanders intervened and prevented the physical confrontation. Liddell walked away and proceeded toward a hotel for dinner. Liddell was approached by a friend and told that the Browns were making harsh comments about him. Liddell left his dinner to confront the men again. However, this time, gunfire erupted and left Liddell and Browns hurt. No one knew who fired on the other first. The white citizens of Carroll County were shocked that the Browns charged Liddell with attempted murder and insisted on taking him to court. It was legal for a black person to take another person to court, but it just made the white people angry that a black person would have the audacity to do such a thing. The trial was set for March 17, 1886. On that day, the courtroom was filled with black and white citizens listening to the evidence. A group of about 50 to 100 white men rode into town on horseback, 
dismounted at the courthouse and charged their way into the courtroom. Gunshots rang out throughout the courtroom. The plaintiffs and the black citizens were shot. No white person was hit. The group of men left the courthouse and rode out of town. However, there was no apparent action taken by the county, no coroner's legal or judicial in- inquiry. The circuit court, no grand jury indictment, nor, not, nor by Mississippi Governor Robert Lowry, whose comment was, the riot was provoked and perpetrated by the outrage and conduct of the Negroes. In the United States Congress, Mississippi Senator James E. George, who was from Carrollton, took no action. The case eventually became a cold case. Citizens of Carroll County stopped discussing the event, and many of the citizens who remembered the massacres died out. Many people who lived in the county well into the 20th century did not know the horror of March 17, 1886. But we here at New Abolitionist Radio do, and we remember what happened on March 17, 1886 at the Carroll County Massacre. Our next segment is the abolitionist in profile, and tonight it is Sojourner Truth. Uh, Sojourner Truth was a prominent abolitionist and women's rights activist born a victim of slavery in New York State. She had at least three of her children sold away from her. After escaping slavery, Truth embraced evangelical religion and became involved in moral reform and abolitionist work. She collected supplies for black regiments during the Civil War and immersed herself in advocating for free people during the Reconstruction period. Truth was a powerful and impassioned speaker whose legacy of feminism and racial equality still resonates today. She is perhaps best known for her stirring Ain't I a Woman speech delivered at a women's convention convention in Ohio in 1851. An evangelist and feminist sojourner, Truth, 1797 to 1883, is remembered for her unschooled but remarkable voice raised in support of abolitionism, the freedmen, and women's rights. Tales of her aggressive platform style, of her challenge to Frederick Douglass on the issue of violence against slavery, Frederick is God dead, and of her bearing her breast before a crew audience who had challenged her womanhood, graced the pages of abolitionist lore. She was six feet tall, blessed with a powerful voice. She spoke English with a Dutch accent and driven by deep religious conviction. Harriet Beecher Stowe attested to Truth's personal magnetism saying that she had never been conversant with anyone who had more of of that silent and subtle power which we call personal presence than this woman. She was born to enslaved victims uh, owned by a wealthy Dutch Patroon in Ulster County, New York. Details of her early life remain cloudy. What is clear is that her name was Isabella and she served a household in New Paltz, New York from 1810 to 1827 where she bore some five children by a fellow victim of slavery. At least two of her daughters and one son were sold away from her during these years. For the sake of time, I'm going to shorten this and jump down. Truth's most important legacy is the tone and substance of her language. As an older woman, she stumped the country, providing emancipation with an eloquent epigraph. Give them land and an outset, and have teachers learn them to read. Then they can be somebody. 
Few modern activists have better described politicians or the purpose of a petition drive than Truth did. Sent them tons of paper down to Washington for them spouters to chaw on. And when she was brutally knocked off of Washington's segregated streetcars, she denounced racism. She said, it is hard for the old slave-holding spirit to die, but die it must. She herself died of old age of old age and ulcerated legs in 1883. Her funeral and burial in Battle Creek, Michigan was the largest that town had ever seen, a testimony to her hold on America's historical imagination and new abolitionist radio salutes. Sojourner Truth. Salute. One quick sister. thing I want to say, um, we got uh, only a few minutes left. Um, Max, we can do quickly our uh, Welcome to Freedom Underground Railroad. If you could prepare that, I, if we could just get through it quickly. I have it already. All right, because we got Mind, Body, and Spirit coming up. But listen, I want to say this right quick because this was bothering me and I didn't say anything about it when people, you know, I always get the same response. I'm doing the best I can. But today I was bothered, well, really the past few days. Uh, I don't know why certain black people feel the need to always bash Christians or Christianity when it is clear from my study of the abolitionist movement that many of our warriors were uh, a part of that faith. I don't wear religion on my sleeve. It ain't none of your business what I practice. But I would say to many of you who like to share these untruths about Christianity and slaving people and, and all this and that, the, the history does not bear that out. All right, this was a Christian woman. But more importantly, she was an abolitionist. And the way I see it is some of you act like old ugly dudes who ain't got nothing going for themselves, so you bash the other people who are competing for that woman's hand. You ain't got nothing to offer her, so all you can do is badmouth other people. That's how I feel about y'all, when y'all badmouth Christians. And, and, and again, you know, why do we have to do that? When you don't know what a person's religious or spiritual practice may be, and you need some help, but because you bad-mouthing them and calling them fools or whatever derogatory terms you come up with, they may decide not to help you. But if they're true, if they're true um, to um, what they're supposed to be about, then they're going to help you anyway. Okay, they're going to help you anyway. But that, that was bothering me. And when I was reading, you know, that she was a Christian, that just brought those brought that up out of me because I had been holding it in. I'm sick of it, man. I'm just sick of it. I can understand, Scotty, as a person who is a uh, registered minister, I can certainly understand. A writer of the 21st Century Underground Railroad, Railroad is Dwayne Thorpe, 34 Philadelphia, un, uh, unjustly incarcerated since 2008. This past Friday, a judge ruled that the homicide detective who arrested him fabricated evidence and provided trial testimony that was so prejudicial it should have resulted in a mistrial. You need to read this story. It's on New Abolitionist Radio. We'd like to say welcome to freedom, Dwayne Thorpe. And with that welcome being said, freedom. Scotty... Was that your final comments for the evening? Yes, those are my final comments for the evening. I want to thank everybody that called in. Either you're going to be an abolitionist, or you can be a slaver, or you can be a victim of slavery. You, you got three choices. Which one is it going to be? 
And uh, as always, I just want people to keep in mind that abolition, the abolition of slavery, is a reason for a revolution. So we can finally know peace. Peace. Rise up, 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 rise up. Just lift your eyes up. Let your wise rise up, see the signs of the times, if it's time, rise up, rise up. When death and hell dwell among all God's people, when those we chose and trusted have become completely corrupted and inherently evil, when the feast that feeds you starves our father's children, when snuff porn and pedo forms begin to get top billing, rise up, when famine claims millions, when... Just